This is KMTT. The week begins this uh, winter, Tavshin Ayin, with a shiur by Harav Benjamin Tavoy, a series, weekly series, on uh, modern responsa of the 20th century, more or less, both the individual and the and the topic. Harav Benjamin Tavoy. This year, I plan to develop a sidra of shiurim about the responsa literature, specifically of the 20th century. Responsa literature has been an ongoing fact since the days of the Gemara. And it seems also logical that some rabbis live far away for, from the people who needed to know answers, and they wrote them letters and asked for their response. We have responsa found already in the Gemara. Sometimes they say they sent a letter from there, or they carried manuscripts from place to place. In the Gaonic literature, in Rishonim literature, Achronim literature, until this very day, we have a tremendous collection of Sheilotu Chuvot responsa. Today, of course, we have through modern technology a new form of Sheilotu Chuvot, which is done by email, by computers, and of course makes the question and answer much more available, ready on hand. We also have the different Discs of Sheilotu Tshuvot, which collect Tshuvot from in the entire gamut of Jewish literature. And therefore, it's very easy to find the topics that you're looking for. It's a tremendous tool in studying Sheilotu Tshuvot. Today, when we discuss Sheilotu Tshuvot, there are a number of factors involved in the study of responsa. The primary res- reason and cause of the the specific response, so were obviously because of certain halachic issues. Generally, they're halachic. Sometimes they could be also theological or just def- different types of questions, but generally they're halachic issues that needed to be resolved. And of course, the halachic information found in the, in the response to literature is extremely important for the development of halacha and to see how we paskin with, in, in, in our days. Today, to pass in a question without being aware of the response to literature seems to be somewhat irresponsible where a person should know the sources that came before him. However, modern scholarship has developed another area of scholarship within the world of responsa, namely a study of history and sociology based upon response to literature. The uh, university world I would like specifically to mention Dr. Chaim Salavechik, who wrote a book about the methodology of studying response to literature and learning history from there, Has but many other scholars as well have studied responsa in order to show the history and the sociology of different generations. While my approach will be more of a yeshiva type of approach, I'd like to analyze a tshuva every week, or sometimes as today, a number of tshuvas of one person 
a week, where I would like to briefly explain who the person was who wrote the tshuvas, from where the tshuvas were addressed, the type of questions that were important in that generation, and also the type of questions that were that were important for that specific person who wrote the tshuvas. It shows a lot about the generation to see the questions that were asked. But it shows a lot about the person who wrote the tshuvas as to what his patterns of thought were, what were important to him. Today, I'd like to discuss, as I said, the beginning of the 20th century. We're going to begin with Shailot Tshuvat of the 20th century. In the 20th century itself, we obviously have to differentiate between different periods within the 20th century. Before the 30s, when most of the Gedolim lived in Europe, and the questions were typical questions, not basically different from questions of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. It seems to be like one period in the 20th century. However, after the Holocaust, or even during the Holocaust, a new form of, well, not actually a new form, but the types of questions were raised, and those were specifically Holocaust-related questions, that opened the whole literature by itself. One of the classic svarm of that time was Rav Ashri's monumental volumes of Sheilotu Tshuvot Mim Ma'amakim, Responsa from the Depths, where questions were asked to him within the Shoah, in the ghetto, as it were. And we have Tshuvos that relate to life after the Shoah, specific questions that were caused by the Shoah. Of course, with the rebirth of the State of Israel and establishing a government in the land of Israel, when modern technology was developed to enable the state to keep certain halachos that seemed difficult without technology, when we had to established laws for a state of Israel, obviously a new type of Shailot to Tshuvot was, were, different types of Shailot to Tshuvot were asked and answered. Some of those volumes, uh, including uh, huge sets of Tshuvot by such outstanding people as, uh, of course, Rav Moshe Feinstein, uh, Rav Waldenberg, uh, Rav Avadji Yosef, and others will be discussed later on in Shirim. Today, I would like to begin with Rav Kook, who was born actually in the 19th century, but discussed issues until his Petira in 1935. Rav Kook was born in 1865 in, Lith- in Lithuania, and lived until 1935. We all know uh, the biography of Rav Kook very briefly, that he was an Ilui in his youth, in Valozhin, as well as other places, became a Rav in Europe, eventually moved to Eretz Yisrael, where he became the Rabbi of Yafo. At that time, Yafo was the big city 
today we would uh, think that Tel Aviv is this city, but that time Yafo was actually the bigger city. Rav Cook was the Rav there for a number of years until he became the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael. When he became the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, he moved to Yerushalayim and began his own yeshiva, a yeshiva which he had a tremendous vision of what he wanted to do with that yeshiva, called it the central yeshiva, Yeshivat Merkaz Harav, which exists, of course, today and is much larger in a different location than when Rav Kook originally built it. Now, Rav Kook wrote various chuvos to people all over the world. It's interesting to see the addresses of the people to whom Rav Kook wrote. In his classic work, Ishim Veshitot, Rabbi Zevin gives a list of different cities from which questions came to Rav Kook. For example, he has Rav Kook has questions from England, from Africa, Afghanistan, Argentina, United States, Germany, Lithuania, Egypt, Norway, Norwegian, India, Canada, Romania, Switzerland, and others. Of course, many of the questions that were addressed to Rav Kook came from Eretz Israel. Rav Kook was the chief rabbi of Israel, and it was logical that many of the questions would come to him. Now, Rav Kook's chuvos were actually printed posthumously, collected in three main volumes. One of the volumes, called Ezrat Kohen, seems to have in it questions that relate to Shulchan Aruch Evano Ezer, the laws that relate to Ksuba, to Gitin, to Kedushin. After all, Ezrat Kohen sounds like Ezra from the word Evano Ezer. From the phrase of the Shulchan Aruch, Evano Ezer would be Ezrat Kohen, the Chuvas of Rav Kook, the Kohen, about Ishut. The volume called Da'at Kohen would seem to be based on Yoredeya, where the questions deal mostly with the laws of Kashrus, of topics that are found in Yoredeya. For example, besides all the laws of Kashrus, the laws of Tzvaka, the laws of Sifrei Torah, etc. Now the third volume, which... I plan to deal mostly with is a volume called Mishpat Kohen. Based on the topics that I've mentioned before, based on names of the books, it would seem that Ezrat Kohen deals with Evan Ha'ezer, Dad Kohen would deal with Yeredeya, so Mishpat Kohen logically should deal with Chosh and Mishpat, with monetary laws. And indeed there are some, very few, laws of monetary cases, but most of Mishpat Kohen deals with the mitzvahs of Eretz Yisrael. Mitzvot HaTuliyot Ba'aretz. It deals a great deal with Shemitah. Now, although Rav Kook wrote a book specifically about Shemitah, his Sefer Shabbat Ha'aretz, nevertheless, many of the laws of of the responsa in Mishpat Kohen are about Shemitah. There are lengthy essays about 
the laws of Arla, the laws of Kilayim, Sefer Zroim, which of course, in a sense, were new questions. Because after all, agricultural questions had not come up so much in rabbinic literature as the Jews did not engage in agriculture. But in the beginning of the 20th century, when Chibat Zion, Shibat Zion, brought back an Aliyah to Eretz Israel and interest in agriculture, so many of these questions had to be addressed, and Rav Kook, as the Rav of Eretz Israel, addressed these questions. Another section in Mishpat Kohen would be the laws related to the Beis HaMikdash, and specifically to the Kedusha of Harabayis in our time. Rav Cook wrote a very lengthy essay discussing the Kedusha of Harabayis today, based himself, based himself firstly on sources from Tanakh. Only afterwards did he deal with with Gemaras, Rambam, Rishonim, Achronim, but he tried to prove that the Kedusha of Harabayis is extant today, which is, of course, the opinion of the Rambam, but first Rav Kook wants to prove from the Psukim themselves, not just from the Psak, which goes through the Gemara and Rishonim and Achronim, but from Tanakh itself. Now, the Rambam already did do such a thing, when the Rambam quoted in Hilchos Beis HaBechira, the Rambam quoted a Pasuk, Vashimosi Asmikdashechem. I will destroy the Beis HaMikdash. And the Rambam quoted Halacha to mean that I will destroy the Beis HaMikdash. Even though I will destroy it, it remains the Beis HaMikdash. The Beis HaMikdash is somehow retains its identity as the Beis HaMikdash, even though it was destroyed. In other words, the Kedusha of the Beis HaMikdash remains even after the Churban. I once pointed out that the Rambam and Rav Kook, of course, based himself on these Psukim, seems to interpret the Psukim very, very literally. Vashimoti et Mikdashechem. Now, the Torah could have written et Mikdashechem Ashamem. The Beis HaMikdash will be destroyed. If you would say the Beis HaMikdash will be destroyed, so you might think the Beis HaMikdash was a Beis HaMikdash, and later on it's destroyed, and there's no longer a Beis HaMikdash. But since the Torah wrote it in a style as Vashimosi as Mikdashechem, I will destroy the Bet Mikdash, it seems that first I will destroy, but even after I destroy it, it remains the Beis HaMikdash. This reminds us, of course, of a famous statement attributed to the Vilna Gaon. When the Torah told us, Vayamas Melech Mitzrayim, the king died, the king of Egypt died, and we know that Chazal interpreted, Rashi and Chumash quotes it, that the king did not die, but he became a leper. Now, the Torah did say the king died. So why would Chazal interpret, not that he didn't really die, but he became a leper? It said in the name of the Vilna Gaon, because of the exact structure of the sentence, as we've just explained. If the Torah would have said, HaMelech mate, the king died, 
that he was king and then he died. But after he died, he's no longer the king. Ein shilton biyamamavet says Shlomo and Kohelet. There's no such thing as monarchy after death. But to hear the Torah did say Vayamot Melech Mitzrayim died the king. So if it said the king died, it would have really meant that he died. But if since it says died the king, it obviously implies that he's still the king after he died. So therefore Chazal had to look for the type of person that is considered dead in a certain sense even while he's alive. The Gemara rejected the other possibilities and therefore said the only one that does make sense would be that he became a leper. So a t- similar type of logic is used in the Pasuk of Hashimoti at Mikdashechem. The Beis HaMikdash is intact Bismanazeh. I would like to show a few chuvos that reflect, on one hand, the attitudes of the people at the time, specifically toward Chibatzion, toward Shibatzion, toward the goals of rebuilding Eretz Israel, coming back to Eretz Israel, and also Rav Kook's response as we know that Rav Kook was a great lover of Eretz Yisrael, how he responded to these tshuvas. One of the most amazing tshuvas found in Mishpat Kohen is not really one where I think any new ground is found in Halacha, but it does show a great deal about the specific time in which he left, in which he lived. The question was asked in Mishpat Kohen, in Kuf Mem Zayin, a person wrote to Rav Kook and asked Rav Kook if you can be Mechalal Shabbos in order to develop Eretz Yisrael. Now, the person that seems to have asked the question, I'm sorry, it's Simon Kuf Mem Vav, but the letter that was written to him seems to be shocking. And Rav Kook, of course, says it's shocking. How could anybody possibly think that you are allowed to be Mechal al-Shabbos for the greater good, as it were, of building Eretz Yisrael? So, of course, halachically, Rav Kook rejected the argument totally. He did explain, perhaps, the source of such a terrible mistake, which we will explain. But it does show how the love for Eretz Yisrael can sometimes cause a person to err in a terrible fashion. Now, Rav Kook, of course, quotes the Gemara that in order to facilitate living in Eretz Yisrael, Chachamim did not employ Gezeros. But we're referring, of course, to the Gemara, which is in Gitten and other places as well, where the Gemara says you're allowed to tell a non-Jew to sign a document in order to transfer ownership of his land to a Jew. For the purpose of Yeshuv Eretz Yisrael, Chachamim did not make Xerah. 
Now, at best, we could learn from here that a mitz, a, a Isra Rabbanon would be waived for the purpose of Yishev Yisrael. But of course, you cannot enlarge that heter to say you can be matir in Isra Daraisa. In fact, Rav Kook points out that even the halacha that you're allowed to be matir, to tell a non-Jew to do malacha on Shabbos was not universally accepted by all Rishonim. Some Rishonim think that the Gemara is referring to the type of writing which is only in Isad Rabbanan in the first place. There is a Machlokas Rishonim if what type of writing is Asr on Shabbos. We won't go into the details now, but some Rishonim would hold to write a regular letter would only be in Isad Rabbanan. Therefore, telling a Nunju to write such a letter would only be a shvus to shvus, an Isad Rabbanan of telling the Nunju to do something that also is only Asad Rabbanan. And Mishum Yishavari Tisrael the Chachamim allowed a shvus to shvus. This opinion is quoted in the Shulchan Aruch itself. Although many Rishonim disagree and think that you're allowed to tell a non-Jew to do even a Malacha Daraisa, but nevertheless it's referring to a an Amira Lenachri to an Isad Rabbanan of Amira Lenachri. Nowhere could we in, somehow extrapolate from that that you're allowed to do an Isad Daraisa. Another source that Rav Kook did quote, which perhaps could have led to such a mistake, was the Gemara that says that Yericha was conquered on Shabbos. Now, the idea of conquering Yericha on, on Shabbos did involve Isur Daraisas. There were Daraisas most probably involved in conquering Yericha. So, would that lead someone to think that Mishum Yishev Eretz Yisrael, you're allowed to do an Isidar Isa? Rav Kook, of course, explained that has nothing to do, the, the heter of Yericho was not because of acquiring new land in Eretz Yisrael, but it was because of war. And we know that war is permitted on Shabbos. Different types of war under different conditions will have to be discussed but basically, the laws of conquering Yericho and Shabbos were based on the laws of war, and not because of building Eretz Yisrael. Therefore, Rav Kook totally rejected this idea, and said, you're allowed to do Amira L'Nachri of Ksiva L'Tzorach Yishev Eretz Yisrael, but beyond that, no one can broaden the heter. The reason I find this tshuva interesting is because it shows how far the love of Eretz Yisrael can push people beyond what seems logical and normal according to Halacha. I'd like to give another example, although not with the same Chumrah, in something that I found in a book by Professor Rakover, who wrote a sefer where he collected the various opinions about Yom Atzma'ot and Yom Yishalayim. One of the questions that had been discussed, and in fact is still discussed today, is whether a person is allowed to read the Haftorah with brachos on Yom Atzmaut. Now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 
that there are some kibbutzim or perhaps some other places where they indeed have instituted such a practice. However, the chief rabbinate and the general accepted opinion in, in Israel is that you neither read the Torah on Yom HaSmod unless it's Monday or Thursday, and you read a parak of Tanakh without making any brachas, without reading it as a uh, Torah as it were. But the question had been discussed, especially in the early 50s, could we really read the Haftorah on, with brachas on Yom Atzmaut? In a letter printed by Rabbi Professor Rakover in that book, he quotes a letter of Rav Bar Shaul written to Rav Neria. Now, Rav Bar Shaul was a Rav of Rechovot who, I think, died at a rather young age. Had he lived, I'm sure, I'm confident that he would have been one of the greatest names in the rabbinic world of Eretz Yisrael. He was the unofficial, or perhaps official, posek of the Kibbutz Adati. And questions were asked to him regarding modern Israeli practices. When I was a student in Karbi Yavna, Rav Bar Shaul came once a week to the yeshiva, where, among other things, he answered questions about general topics. In the Sefer of Rabbi Rakover, Rav Bar Shaul wrote that if you really insist, I could write a tshuva, and I could explain why there is a heter to read Aftar with brachas. However, practically, I prefer not doing so. Practically, I'm afraid of the ramifications of changing the nature of a particular day, which we call Yom Atzma'ut, and how far can we really put it into a category of the types of days where you read Haftorah with Brachas. And he said, in a shocking comment, that in the city in which I live, in Rechovot, I've already heard that there are certain people who do not put on tefillin on Yom Atzmaut. Now, obviously, we're referring to people who put on tefillin normally, people who consider themselves religious people. And somehow, they took the day of Yom Atzmaut, which as much as Zionism can say it's a unique day in the Jewish calendar and it should be noted as such, but it certainly does not have Kedusha Sayyam. There's no Kedusha in the day of Yom Atzmaut. It's certainly a day where we put on tefillin. Uh, many people put on tefillin on, on Cholamoid. Some people don't put on tefillin Cholamoid. Rosh Chodesh, everybody puts on tefillin. Purim, everybody puts on tefillin. Chanak, everybody puts on tefillin. How could a person think that in Yom Atzmaut you don't put on tefillin? It shows, again, the love for Eretz Yisrael has so far been instilled in people at that time, whether it be in the beginning of the 20th century when Rav Cook was referring to people who were building Eretz Yisrael at the time of Shivat Zion, or we're referring to after Hakamat Hamdina, we see that Ahava Kilkalat Hashura. Rav Cook, of course, did have other tshuvot that relate to Eretz Yisrael, 
And again, the attitude of Rav Kook to those Chuvot would be, I think, interesting to note how Rav Kook related to Eretz Yisrael in general. In Siman Kuf Ayin Chet of the Sefer Dad Kohen, which I mentioned before, is a Sefer that deals more with Yeridea questions. And there we have a strange and interesting question about a Sefer Torah. A certain person died in Chutzlaretz. When he died, so he left the Sefer Torah. This tshuva apparently was written in 1934 to someone who lived in South America. Or perhaps, no, I, I'm sorry, in, in, in Krakow, in 1934. A Sefer Torah was left, and one of the people who inherited wanted to bring the Sefer Torah to Eretz Israel. But on one hand, we generally don't travel or take a Sefer Torah from one place to another. Another factor that was asked, that was mentioned in the question, which also is very, very interesting in light of the historical period, is that the person who owned the Sefer Torah had been opposed to reestablishing the Yeshuv in Eretz Yisrael. He was of the group of people that felt that we should not come to Eretz Yisrael, we shouldn't push off, we shouldn't try to encourage, to hurry, as it were, the Geula, but leave things in the hands of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The person himself who had passed away did daven in a certain shul in Krakow, and perhaps the Sefer Torah should remain there. Rav Kook answered the question and split the issue into two different issues. One issue is really a Choshem Mishpat question. To whom does the Sefer Torah belong? After all, it was a Yerusha. And there are more than one Yarshim. There was more than one inheritor. So in terms of money, the question has to be resolved. And Rav Kook referred that to the local community. However, as far as bringing the, the Sefer Torah to Eretz Yisrael, would, uh, would that be allowed? So there, Rav Kook wrote how great it is for Svarim to be in Eretz Yisrael, how important it is that the Svarim themselves somehow want to be brought into to Eretz Yisrael. And as far as the fact that the person was opposed to the reestablishment of Israel, to the rebuilding of the land, Rav Kook in his understanding, in his opinion, says that obviously the people that were opposed were concerned about the level of Torah and religiosity in Eretz Israel. Bringing a Sefer Torah would certainly be good. It would encourage more religion, more devotion in Eretz Israel. Also, Rav Kook added, today, and this is written in 1934, before the establishment of the State of Israel. Rav Kook writes, today, now that we see what has been going on in Eretz Israel, 
everyone would agree, even the people that were opposed to reestablishing, re- rebuilding land of Israel, everybody would agree that today it is smichat keren Yeshua batchalat ha'gula. Interestingly enough, that Rav Cook in his optimism felt that everyone in 1934 would already have agreed that Eretz Yisrael is the beginning of the Geula. Therefore, there is no doubt in Rav Cook's mind that as long as the financial issues of the Yarshim would be solved, it would be a great mitzvah, and it would be a tremendous zchus, both for the person who left the Sefer Torah and for the Sefer Torah itself, that they should come and be returned to Eretz Yisrael. So, we've seen today how the love of Eretz Yisrael in the time of Rav Kook was shown in one hand by someone who almost overwhelmed the, ba- the boundaries, another person who at first seemed opposed to the land, to rebuilding the land, but nevertheless Rav Kook understood that today, 1934, everybody would agree that Eretz Yisrael now is Tchilat HaGu'ulah.